Halashin for Halas? Want to buy or find dine? Stay tuned to High FM on 101.9. Join Adrian Bugatti for Essen Fresen Tuesday mornings from 11 a.m. where it's all about the food. Good morning and welcome to the Essen Fresen show. I'm Sharon Lurie, the kosher butcher's wife, coming to you live from our studio. And should you have any comments or anything to say or want to discuss, you can send an SMS to 34519. Or you can call me on 0101403020. Simple as that. Looking forward to hearing from you. I, I like interaction with people. So let's get down to some business and uh, let me tell you what is coming up on the show. We actually have a lovely show lined up for you. And um, it's been quite a week food-wise. Imagine getting ready for a shoot in July for Rosh Hashanah, which is only mid-September. And reason being that magazines obviously have deadlines and articles and recipes need to be in and need to be written at least two to three months before. So I was enjoying my, I did my, I was clever enough to do my shoot on Friday so that we could have the leftover meat that night. And this year I decided to do something different. In fact, something my daughter-in-law in London suggested. She said, when we do yaunt of lunches, we, we do yaunt of lunches rather than big dinners on first and second night. And as a newly married young girl, I remember I always did second day lunch. I loved it. The elders did the nights and one cousin did first day, but I always did second day. And it was always extra special. I'd putz go around in the kitchen and I'd love making salads and play with the smoked turkeys and the cold meat and make extra special desserts. Because if you're like me and you have a sweet tooth, the last thing you'll remember at a meal is the dessert table. So this year I decided it was going to, it was going to be a yontip lunch for the media and a bit of nostalgia. And it was so much fun. So look out for the Rosh Hashanah issue of the Jewish Life, which will give you some great ideas for a buffet lunch. And, of course, I will still be sharing some traditional recipes with you, with some twists and spins and tweaks here and there before Yontiv. And I'll be including, obviously, the customary simanim. But after the break... Um, I chat to one of my favorite all-time foodies, um, and that is Susie Fishbein. When she's not writing cookbooks, making public appearances, at cooking demos, going on culinary tours, going to the White House, appearing on TV, she's busy with her new role as Bobby to her granddaughter in Israel. So I'll catch up with her after the break. And um, see you then. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to my show. Susie, it's wonderful to speak to you. And I'm so glad that we don't have to, I don't have to wait eight, seven or eight hours before I can talk to you. You're in Israel, so you're just, you're just yes. one hour ahead of us. So I'm going to take... Nice to be on a similar time zone. Yes, it is lovely. I'm going to take you back quite a bit to when you first arrived. Well, let, let's start 
firstly with um, your first introduction to food. Did you do a lot of cooking growing up? I did not do a lot of cooking growing up per se, but I did like to fuss. I would go to the library and take out books about how to turn vegetables into floral arrangements. And I would make these beautiful mums out of onions and uh, roses out of radishes and tomatoes and make these centerpieces. And my parents were very good let it stay on my dining room table, even though the stench after a few days was just almost unbearable. <laughs> so I definitely like to fuss and I like to make things pretty, but no, cooking was not something I thought I would ever do for a livelihood. Yeah. Um, I went to school. I got a master's in science. I was a public school teacher for fourth grade, which in America is 10 year olds. Uh, it's a job that I loved that I thought I would be in forever. It turns out forever was just three years. Um, because at that point I moved to uh, New Jersey and the commute was about two hours each way. So I was spending four hours uh, in my car. But the public school was such an incredible school that I didn't want to give up that job. But the commute was really, really awful. And my husband and I decided we were going to settle down and try to start a family. So um, I left that job and I found myself living in suburbia in this beautiful uh, big house that was not yet full of children. And when you live in suburbia, in especially in America, there's really no way to meet people if you don't have children, because that's where you meet people. You meet people in playgroups and in nursery school, you know, uh, carpool lines. So I went knocking on my synagogue's door and I asked if they were looking for volunteers, which is not a question that they get you get often. And immediately they uh, hopped me in. And within six months, I was sisterhood president and I had a knack for fundraising. And so that put me on the radar of the local Jewish day school. And that's, I guess, where my culinary story really begins. <laughs> it, bega- it begins with that beautiful book. What, what's the, the, pa- the kosher palette? So it begins with a book called The Kosher Palette. I co-edited that book with a friend of mine. Um, and we did it as a fundraiser for, for the kids' day school. And that book sold over 50,000 copies. 50,000 copies, mind you, if it was from a real, um, would have been a New York Times bestseller. And it raised over a million dollars for the school. It was wow. a huge success, and I fell in love with every part of the cookbook industry, and I knew it was something that I wanted to do with my life. And, uh, you know, part of selling the kosher palette was setting up the business office. You know, when you self-publish a book, it's like going to the local office supply store and picking of your whatever and then they're yours you know it's not like when you publish a book through a legitimate publisher they then distribute the book and they have warehouses and full operations you know to distribute your book we did not have that you know and the school was not in the business of selling books so 5,000 books initially were ordered or 7,500 I don't remember the number they were delivered to my co-editor's house and I opened up the office for the kosher palette on my bedroom floor. Um, <laughs> at that time that I already had one child and I worked six days a week selling that book. If you bought a kosher palette, you spoke to me on the phone. Um, I processed your credit card and then I like, wrapped up your book and one of our husbands dropped it at the local post office for the school. Like that was literally how all of those books sold. In addition to um, me constantly being on the phone with local Judaica stores and bookstores and JCC gift shops who were carrying the book for us. And one of those days, probably a year and a half, two years into selling the kosher palette, um, I was on the phone with Tuvia from Tuvia's 
are. And he says to me, so when are you going to do your next book? And I tell him, well, it's an interesting story to be. I actually lost my first job before I got to start. And he says, well, what do you mean? I had been interviewing with Grand Central Terminal. I was going to be doing a cookbook for them. Grand Central Terminal is a beautiful historic train station in Manhattan. It was a pet project of Jackie Kennedy Onassis, and it was reopening in all of its grandeur. And the whole focus of it were was food. These four anchor restaurants and a whole caravan of food um, stalls that were procured items of all of the best of everything from all over Manhattan. The best oils and the best spices and interesting ingredients and local farm products. And I was going to be doing a cookbook for them representing all the foods of Grand Central Terminal. And I was supposed to be going in to sign the contracts on that on September 10th, I'm sorry, on September 12th of 2001, and that was obviously the day before September 11th when Manhattan shut down, and the project basically went away. So I tell the story to Tuvia from Tuvia's bookstore, Muncie, and he says, well, you want to know why you lost that job? I said, tell me, Tuvia, why? He says, because you never should have been writing a trip cookbook for the Goyim. <laughs> so I said, okay, Tuvia, do you know anyone in the Jewish world that might be interested in hiring me? And he said, I'm going to get you an interview with my uh, friends at Art School. I buy all my Jewish books from them. And he got me an interview, and that, as they say, it was history. They took a chance on me. I like to say I took a chance on them, but really I had nothing to lose. <laughs> and um, from the really the very first printing of the original Kosher by Design, I would say within weeks, we knew we had lightning in a bottle, that this was going to be an unstoppable series. And 500,000 copies, a half a million copies of Kosher by Design books are out there in this world. Um, and really this world, because they, they were distributed everywhere. They were distributed yes. in, in Australia, I think, uh, in your country. They were so distributed in Canada, in America. Yeah. Um, they really, they really went everywhere. And they, I'll never forget, I went to a big fundraiser, I can't remember, oh, just a few years ago. And, um, we were all given a copy of your book. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. So, back to Susie, but before we go back to, let me tell you a little bit about uh, Susie, that together with Art Scroll, she created the famous cooking books, Kosher by Design series, which brought about a completely new era in kosher cookbooks. She launched kosher cookbook, she actually launched the kosher cookbook revolution. And so it was that 20 years later, all the great kosher food authors banded together to create an incredible new book showcasing some of the greatest recipes ever. The Best of Kosher is the most wonderful, wonderful book. If you want a lovely birthday present, you want a gift for uh, Rosh Hashanah, hint to somebody, hint to your family members. And this amazing book is actually available at Kolel. So to get recipes from authors like Naomi Nachman, Khani Applebaum, Daniela Silva, Victoria Duick, just to name a few, and of course Susie, um, just Get this book. It's really worth it. And if we have time after the rest of the interview, then I will give you one or two of the wonderful recipes. So wow. that's why Susie Fishbein is on everybody's shelf. <laughs>
just say were the most enjoyable moments about writing books and what were the most stressful moments about writing these books? I would say the the most stressful moments in writing these books uh which came with every single uh, book in the series when it came time to writing the dessert section. Um people who are great cooks don't tend to be great bakers and vice versa and skills don't translate. So I would definitely say coming up with a section of desserts for each book that represented the concept of each book was definitely stressful. Uh they also had to be like on a you know a, a pretty common uh skilled level a because that's where my baking skills were and b that's where my audience was so mm-hmm. i would say that was probably the the you know the 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 most stress inducing uh aspect of writing the books um the best part was always deciding what the next book was going to be in fact my tradition with gadalia slada what's rabbi slada with the art scroll was i would write one book finish it take one day off he'd call me he'd say okay what's the next book mm-hmm. i would give him the you know what what my concept was and mm-hmm. then i'd be off and writing and that is how the books came out in such quick succession um you know over such a short amount of time i you know mm-hmm. i did not have a team working on these books it was me so to write a book every two years is really pedal to the metal that's kind of unheard of speed and it's because i literally took one day off between books and i always sort like from halfway through a book i i automatically knew like what my next topic was going to be and really it's because if i when i look at that the rainbow of spines in that series it really represents my adult life in the kitchen you know i couldn't have written this series out of order i could not have written kids in the kitchen before i had kids in my kitchen and those kids grew up to be teens and 20 somethings and that's when that book was written and the original you know entertains was you know when i started throwing parties you know not 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 bar mitzvah parties but the the parties of your everyday life you know um anniversary parties for your parents and picnics for my family and a husband's special birthday and that's you know that's all those beautiful photo shoots came from real moments in my growing up life um short on time came at its time where i was short on time i was a mom at that point i think of three children and i was traveling for work and always busy and looking for those quick and easy recipes so the series kind of dictated itself uh, obviously culminating with kosher by design brings it home which to me really represented um an offshoot of this wonderful career that has presented so many opportunities to me uh one of the most interesting has been the travel aspect and leaving uh, my comfort and my and my um home country and seeing how people first of all how Jews live in other countries but how people eat and cook in other countries mm-hmm. and all the preparation that goes into leading a culinary trip to another country and what you have to learn and then you know being in a classroom um for example in italy i take a classroom in florence and teach kosher cooking for a week no. so i'm not going to teach you know schnitzel when you're in in <laughs> italy i'm going to be teaching italian cooking with all the jewish history and all the local history that comes with that right um the countries that you visit italy Israel? So the, the what I what I do now the culinary trips that I run now um t- twice a year I do Florence I take a classroom in Florence for a week um and then I go up north in Italy I do Milan and Lake Como in the spring 
Um, and now I'm working, I have a group that already came with me on those trips and they want another. So we'll be doing Venice and Bologna. I do a culinary t- trip of Israel. Um, and previous to that, before I went out on my own running these significant culinary trips, I was, um, I worked for other companies that took me to places like, um, like Southern France. Um, and I was, Portugal, Spain, like, and I was just sort of like the entertainment on those uh, trips, I wouldn't call those culinary trips, but they did have a few cooking classes with me. The trips that I run now are definitely more culinary focused. I firmly believe that all these books have literally lifted the lid of that static term of, of kosher cooking, you know, kosher food. And, you know, we, we don't want to cook it the way our grandmothers cooked it. And yet, because we've got so many wonderful products now on the market, um, but we want to still have that tradition. I mean, you know, come the Yom Tov, and we still want to have the traditional um, filter fish. And, that, and you've really uplifted all those traditional foods and, you know, put a beautiful twist onto all of them. So That's very sweet. Thank you. But, you know, whenever I talk to people about their menu planning, I always say, like, don't forget that your kids are going to want to smell your Bubby's brisket when they walk into your uh-huh. house. Don't negate, you know, yes. you can make a menu and six of the items over the two days can be new things that you've discovered in mine or somebody else's cookbook. But don't forget the things that are the tradition of your home. Though, you know, they, they say the sense of, of smell is, is the strongest yeah. and the last sense to leave people. And it's so tied to memory so foods represent that and you don't want to you don't you you don't want to have a table that doesn't have representation of your your relatives who are gone who who used to you know be the people that are that were putting out the table um at that at your safe you if your mother made a special potato cuddle you want that and not everything has to be new and cutting edge it's kind of nice to mix things together yeah, absolutely. And you say, I mean, as you say, memory is so strong and so important. Every time I think of Pesach, I hear my mother's um, mincing machine going, making the chopped liver. <laughs> it's the sound and the taste and the... Oh, Sharon, the we smell. share that same memory. My mother grinding her own chopped liver and yeah. the, the specific pl- plastic. It wasn't even fancy, a plastic bowl with a metal. Exactly. My grandmother would make the haroset and, yeah. you know... Um, it, th- those are memories that just, you know, they uh, they okay. tie you to your history. Absolutely. But, the, but all your touring to different countries and the, the, the um, tours that you offer, what is your favorite cuisine? Sounds like it could be Italian, but you tell me. <laughs> what I love about the Italian cuisine is two, or two things, both as a Jew and as an eater. Yes. They take the list of ingredients and this is speaking as an eater and they just sing they just know how to make them come alive i sometimes i write up the recipes that i include in the in the workbook and i'm like there's like no ingredients here but yet i know how incredible the dish is um and from a, a jewish history perspective what i really respect and love about italian cuisine is as opposed to in america and this is not a knock on american cuisine american cuisine is incredible because it's every cuisine sort of mixed together in a potpourri yeah. you know you want to mix and match and, you know, on, on Purim, make a, a Spanish Copeta Humantash and, you know, take different cultures and kind of mix it together. But in Italy, it's exactly the opposite. Even the, the cutting edge restaurants there today want the food to represent 
the way that their grandmothers cook the food. There's no fancy twists. There's no changes. They're really authentic to their roots. And with that includes the Jewish history and the Jewish stamp on the Italian cuisine. So, for example, in the Roman ghetto, there are those famous artichokes, Cartrufo alla Judea. That's what they're called. That's what they're called in non-kosher restaurants. That's not just what they're called at a shul kiddush. That's what they're called everywhere. They yes. keep that Allah Judea as a nod to where she came from and where did that recipe come from. When the Jews were locked in the Roman ghetto, they had access to almost nothing except things they could forage for, artichokes being a thistle and very unappealing, and olive oil, which was cheap. And they would they were able, they're one of the very few jobs they were able to keep were um, selling secondhand rags and fried foods on the street, frigatory. So they would fry these artichokes, and that became um, a delicacy. And to this day, it's something that people seek out when they go to Rome. They want to eat these fried, gorgeous Roman artichokes that open up to look like a sunflower. So mm. I love that that nod is there um, wherever we are in Italy. There's no whitewashing of our history and our contribution, and our contributions to Italian cuisine are huge. Things like eggplants, things like tomatoes, mm. things that are intrinsically Italian, they were the gifts of the Jewish people uh, via their Arab neighbors, to be you know, quite honest. You know, Jews lived for hundreds of years peacefully, or for the most part peacefully in Sicily with their Arab neighbors. Uh, who were incredible traders to the new world and were introduced to things like eggplant. That's why all the Syrian food, mm. the eggplant, the pine nuts, the sweet and sour foods with raisins and pine nuts. If you ever see an Italian dish that includes that sweet and sour mixture and raisins and pine nuts, you know, it was a Jewish dish that the, the Jews learned in Sicily from their Arab neighbors. And when they were kicked out of Sicily in the edict of expulsion in 1492, brought with them to the boot of Italy and were chased up, you know, to northern Italy. And where they settled is where their food became apparent and beloved and accepted in, um, in, in Italian cuisine. So, you know, things like eggplant, that was really not until in the middle of the 1900s, you know, that... <laughs> people would, would would accept eggplant as as a food. In fact, the word eggplant in Italian is mela and zan, mad apple. Yeah. You know, when <laughs> the Italians first saw, you know, the Jews eating eggplant, they, oh my God, that will give you headaches, that can cause illness, cancer, uh, make you insane, mela and zan, mad apple. And then mm -hmm. I guess they started smelling how delicious the food was. And now eggplant is such an intrinsic part of Italian cuisine. So, again, Italy doesn't whitewash that history. Right. And, guess and the what, credit is given there. And guess what I'm going to make for supper tonight? Because I've got some lovely <laughs> melons. Because uh, uh, being the nine days, I'm trying to think of all the different things that I can make. I find it so difficult not <laughs> eating meat. Anyway. I've got my dinner going also. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Now, I read somewhere that you were invited to the White House. Am I right? I was. I was an honored guest at the White House in honor of National Jewish Heritage Month during yes. the Obama White House, okay. where they invited um, Jews who were distinguished in all different fields. I sat next to a famous football player. We were entertained by a famous uh, Regina Spector was her name. Um, yes. Alana Kagan, who was just appointed to the Supreme Court, is a notable Jew. She was invited yes. to that party. It was really a very special memory for me. Wow. Did you serve anything? 
Or was it all served to you? No, I was I was there as a guest. I was not cooking. (laughs) So now, what um, what I really wanted to speak to you was I wanted to chat about that amazing new book, The Best of Kosher, which is literally is the best of the U.S. kosher cooks and chefs and authors. And what an amazing, amazing book. Yeah, very fun this, collaboration. How did Basically, you know, for the first few years of my contract with Art Scroll, I had an agreement with them that they would not entertain another cookbook author and not I would not entertain a contract from another publisher. Uh-huh. And after a few years, um that ad clause sort of died away because the market was just so ripe for more yes. and more was not going to hurt what was out there. And Art School then became the go-to publisher. There is not hardly a, 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 a famous kosher cookbook author mm-hmm. whose at least their first books were not done through Art Scroll. So they really ran the table of kosher cookbook authors. And this book is a collaboration of those 13 authors. The book was done by the dinner done between carpools people, very talented group of women. And the concept is everybody was supposed to take their three most famous recipes from each of their books and then contribute an additional three. Uh, because I obviously have a, I don't have one or two books. I had nine books. Obviously there's a large portion of that book are my recipes. So both the 27, maybe even a few more than that of my original works. And then probably six of my really current, like if I was writing a book today, these would have been headlines in my newest book. I really, you know, gave great recipes. So, um, I'm, I'm assuming that my co-authors did exactly the same. So it's a really, you know, exciting book and they reshot it to make it look, you know, consistent and modern and the book is doing beautifully. It is. It's the most beautiful book. And thank God we can get it in South Africa. So everybody go out and get it. You've got the best of everybody in that book. And uh, so now anything else in the pipeline? Come on, Susie. Other than being a wonderful Bobby, what else have you got coming our way? So I have to say these, these, these culinary trips, they take a ton of work because I do take them seriously. I don't look at these trips as I'm going on a trip and you should just enjoy being in this country with me, seeing it through my eyes. I, that's not how I run my trips. My trips are you're going to get a full culinary experience. You're going to cook with me. You're going to meet with local chefs. We're going to experience everything that's possible within the realm of kosher. So the trips really take a lot of time, a lot of planning. I, in fact, right now, last night on my 2 to 3 a.m. shift, I was working with um, a graphic designer in America because I give out these beautiful workbooks that serve as cookbooks for the trips, and they take a lot of work. So um, I would say basically that, and I'm still hired to do cooking demos. In fact, I'll, I will always kick myself Years and years ago, when my kids were still too little for me to accept this, um, I was called by somebody in the South African world. I don't know where. I don't know what neighborhood. And they called to say, we want to hire you. We want to bring you to do a cooking demo. And in exchange for payment, we'll fly you and your family and we'll send you on safari. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> and I had to decline it because my kids were just too little. I couldn't figure out the pieces. And that's the one job that I turned down that I 
wish I could go back and take because I've never been, um, I've never been to your country. Well, hopefully <laughs> so, somebody's listening. Um, I still listening. do my cooking demos. So I, you know, I travel for work, obviously, yeah. still. Um, and these, you know, every time I do one of these trips, it's about nine or ten days away from my husband. So, um, you know, when I go to Italy, he doesn't come on those trips. When I even do culinary in, in Israel, he hasn't been coming on these trips. So, yeah. um, really, that schedule is keeping me full enough. My Eyes are always open. Look, I always say the secret to my success was that I never said no. Every opportunity that came my way, even if I felt like I had no business except I always said yes. Even if it made me uncomfortable, even if I felt like I was outclassed and there was probably someone better suited, I always said yes. And I worked hard and I kept my head down and um, almost always found success. And, uh, you know, so you never know what the next opportunity will be. I will always try to say yes to an opportunity. Um, well, so I, I can't tell you what <laughs> what new and exciting and different that's coming, but I'm certainly loving more, you know, similar to what I've been doing. Right. And well, hopefully somebody is listening and uh, they'll take you up on and bring you out to South Africa again. Oh, well, not again. <laughs> <laughs> they'll put the offer out there. <laughs> And, um, Susie, just lots of luck with all the things that you do. Where can people contact you if they want to come on these beautiful culinary tours that you do? They can email me at Susie Fishbine, like spelled on the books, right. Susie Fishbine at gmail.com. I'm on Facebook on the Susie Fishbine fan page, not on my private page, yes. but on the Susie Fishbine fan page and on Instagram at Susie Fishbine. And that's where I promote and talk about all these trips. Um, but on, I do have a mailing list and they, I give my mailing list like one day's heads up before I post on social media because the trips close out. They close out in two days. Wow. So I like to give people who have traveled with me first dibs, people who are on my email list second dibs, and then it goes to social media and then the trips usually close out because I have a classroom. I can't accommodate endless numbers of people. I can only take, you know, usually between 15 and 20 people, depending on the destination. So they are in, at least right now, very high demand. Oh, I heard, I heard that they're absolutely incredible. Incredible. They are a dream. They really they are. are. A lifetime experience, something to put on your bucket list, ladies. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> okay, Susie, I've run out of time. I could carry on talking to you for uh. hours. Thank it's you. so nice to speak with you. Nice to speak to you too. And uh, enjoy your babala. Thank you so much, Sharon. Okay. Nice speaking with you. Bye-bye. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Right. So what are we making for supper tonight? Yeah, it's been a bit difficult. You know, we can't just slip on those chops and chips and, and whatever and the steak. Easy stuff to make during the week because it's the nine days and we traditionally don't eat meat for these nine days. So, um, what are we making? Are we going to be making filled baked potatoes with um, mushrooms and asparagus and tuna and mayonnaise and grated cheese? Are we going to do an Asian stir-fry, which I actually did last night, and I will give the recipe to you. It's quite simple. What about Thai um, Thai salmon? We can do that with lovely um, soy sauce and sesame sauce. Tuna patties. Pasta. And what about lovely vegetable soup with um, 
pasta and beans, chunk of crusty bread, falafel. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm so hungry <laughs> that I'm choking up here. Falafel, uh, vegetable curry. Well, there were, I've given you a few that you can choose from. But something that I actually wanted to share from Susie's book after the song um, is wonderful Ellie's wonderful onion crusted chicken it's oh sounds too delicious and we can make that on Shabbos so after the break I will come back with that recipe Hi FM your station of choice since 2008 Hi welcome back to the Essen Present Show I'm Sharon Lurie the kosher butcher's wife and I've been talking to Susie Fishbein, who's come out with this wonderful new book, Best of Kosher, with a whole group of, I think about 11 or 13 authors. <clears throat> and um, she was just t- chatting to us. But one of the recipes that I really wanted to share was something that, um, I think it's her son, Ellie. It's called Ellie's Onion Crusted Chicken Created. So this recipe came out at the on outset of the crunchy chicken trend and it's achieved that takeout fried chicken we've come to love and but in a homemade and healthier way that's why this recipe caught on fan, caught on and fans love it both as a weeknight meal and for Shabbos so I thought we could use make it for Shabbos they make it with chicken parts um, as in the original recipe, or using chicken cutlets, as shown here. But here, there's something about the crunch of the onions and creaminess of the dressing that makes them want to put it on their chicken. That makes them want to put it on the chicken. <clears throat> you know, sorry, I've had this terrible cough <clears throat> since COVID. It just doesn't go away. I mean, it's just months and months. Anyway, let's get back to Ellie's onion crusted chicken. So the sauce is a half a cup of horseradish sauce, half a cup of honey mustard. You can get, I think we can, you can use the, um, what's her name? We've got, there's plenty of honey mustard recipes, bottles of salad dressing out there. You can even use Boba Shah salad dressing. Um, one can, which is about, I would say about two cups. Of crispy fried onions. Now they use Frenchs in America, but we can just go to um, the vegetable shop. Oh, slip my mind for the fresh fellas. They have lovely crispy fried onions. And then what you'll need is about a kilo of boneless, skinless chicken breast slice. So that, that that's your um, chicken strips. Okay, get those raw, and then you preheat your oven to 350 or 180, and you line a baking sheet with parchment paper and set that aside. And in a small bowl, you whisk together the horseradish sauce and the honey mustard, and you transfer the sauce to a shallow plate or pan. Pour the fried onions into a second shallow plate or pan, Dip the skin side of each chicken part in the sauce and then dip into the fried onions. Place the coated chicken on prepared pan. Bake uncovered 
for about 30 to 40 minutes until the chicken is no longer pink in the middle. Now, our <coughs> chicken strips are, won't need that much time for cooking, probably about 20 to 30 minutes because they are smaller. The chickens in America are huge. <laughs> so we just got to watch the chicken breast and, and then using tongs, transfer the chicken to a bowl or a platter. Um, if you're going to use bone-in chicken, then you would need to cook it for about an hour and a half. And if you'd like to make this using bone-in chicken, you'll need eight bone-in chicken parts with the skin. So whether it's thighs, breast, legs, or whatever, um, don't forget just to roll, roll it around in the coating. And um, a tip from the author is, um, this makes a lovely savory version if you use a little bit of chili instead of the horseradish and honey mustard sauce. So you can use a little bit of chili with the honey mustard sauce. Or you can use, as they call it, duck sauce, which is, I would say, our version of sweet chili sauce. So that's a lovely dish to make. And as I say, Super and Friday. I mean, the picture looks beautiful in the book. So now, going back to what are we going to make for supper tonight. As I said, I made it yesterday and it was absolute last night for supper and it was delicious and I can't wait to get home to have it for lunch. And it was, it's, it's an Asian stir fry. What you'll need are three tablespoons of sesame oil, three tablespoons of vegetable oil, and using a julienne peeler. Now those are those, it's not just those regular peelers, it's, it's got an extra blade in which actually slices the, your carrots and or anything that you're going to use into very fine shreds. You can get these peelers at Kitchenique, even at uh, Pick and Pay, or wherever you you buy your culinary requirements. <laughs> okay, so you're using the julienne peeler, you shred two large carrots, two sticks of celery, which it's difficult to shred the celery, so I just cut mine into very fine um, pieces, about what, two millimeters thick, on, a, on the horizontal. I then cut one onion in half, and then I finely sliced it, You'll also need one green or one red pepper cut in half and finely sliced, about 10 snap peas finely sliced, half a cup of defrosted frozen corn, a third of a cup of finely sliced spring onion, and one pack of bean sprouts, which is about, I would say you need about two handfuls of bean sprouts and some sesame seeds just to end it off. So those are the ingredients that you'll need. When I come back, you will have, oh, we're not coming back. Sorry. Okay. We got, we all, oh, we got to wrap up. Sorry. My mistake there. So what you'll need for, um, for the sauce is one heap tablespoon of cornstarch dissolved in one cup of cold water, a third of a cup of soy sauce, two tablespoons of syrup, three tablespoons of rice vinegar or white vinegar, one tablespoon of toasted sesame oil, one teaspoon of crushed garlic, half a teaspoon of hot chili, or you can use chili sauce or fresh chilies, and two teaspoons of finely grated ginger. 
Okay, and you mix all that together. You fry up your vegetables. I'm short on time, but I am going to put this up on the site. Um, you fry your vegetables uh, over quite high heat, and then you add your sauce. You add your ramen noodles. So you need two packets of ramen noodles. I forgot to add that in your ingredients list. And you cover that boiling water, let it absorb that for two minutes, and then you get rid of the water. Add that, add the sauce, mix it all together, and it's absolutely delicious. And if you're battling with that recipe, then just get frozen stir-fry veggies and and cook those up. Or just go to sushi and get, get the Asian um, noodles. Okay, well, that was a very quick recipe, and time to... Wind up and say thank you for joining me and see you in two weeks.